podcast friends. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorporateReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this Tuesday evening, the 27th of March, 2012. For most of you back in the United States of America or wherever you might be listening around the world on RepublicBroadcasting.org. Thank you again for tuning in tonight, and tonight we have a special guest lined up for you because due to popular demand, I have a very special guest lined up for tonight. We have Tom Woods, of course, the New York Times bestselling author and a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute who has authored numerous books, including Rollback, Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Financial Fiscal Collapse, and Nullification, How to Resist Federal Tyranny in the 21st Century and many, 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 many other works besides, uh, suffice it to say, he's a prolific and uh, profound thinker on a number of issues that are affecting the types of liberty that we talk about here on the broadcast every single night. And he's uh, he's been gracious enough to join us for the first half of tonight's broadcast. So, Tom Woods, thank you so much for appearing tonight on Corporate Report Radio. Well, the pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, this is your first time on the program, so perhaps we can uh, talk a little bit about your background and where you're coming from. Uh, sure, I'm actually interested in your background. I mean, you've got good taste in music. We've got I Want to Tell You, a totally underrated Beatles song opening the show. Uh, then I find out you're in Japan. I wonder if you know my friend Mike Rogers, uh, who, who uh, is a, an expat from the U.S. who's living in Japan, has wrote a wonderful book, Being an American Living in Japan, and what he's learned about it and how he's come to love the people there. But you and I should talk off the air about these things. But uh, if you want to, but just in terms of me, you're right. I mean, I've I basically write books all the time. People ask, how could you write this many books? And my answer always is, well, when you, you know, when you have no social life, you'd be amazed at how <laughs> productive you can be. But, uh, actually the thing with me is I've, uh, you know, I was writing things mainly just for other academics for a long time. And then I got uh, an offer by a publisher. Would I write a book, please, called The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History? And I thought, hey, that is a clever title. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll go ahead and do that. And that was like the best decision I ever made because that I, I, I'm the terrible I'm terrible at titles, but that title just sold that book. Just regardless of the merits of it, people were just buying it like crazy, and that was what really sort of catapulted me. And then from there, I've just been a kind of I've spent all my time as kind of a mythbuster, and I, I get to direct myself at both left and right, given how totally corrupt the right wing is, uh, having been taken over by the neocons. So they they don't know how to pigeonhole me and, and the left doesn't like me but the liberty people have been my constant supports uh, through it all and my academic background is very conventional and establishment i mean harvard and columbia i sound like I, I must be the worst guy in the world but my goal has been to make those universities regret the day they ever admitted me that i can <laughs> now exploit their credentials <laughs> against them <laughs> well, I think you're doing a pretty good job of that so far, given uh, the opprobrium of the likes of New York Times and others in trying to uh, denounce your work, including, of course, the politically incorrect guide to American history. But uh, but I think you, you point to an extremely important aspect of all of this, and it's something that we point out here on the broadcast quite frequently, and that's that the left-right political paradigm is really a failed paradigm that only serves to keep the public in a box that really doesn't do the public any justice and uh, only serves to limit our scope and understanding of politics. I'm just, I'm shocked. I, I think once your eyes are opened to this truth that you've hit upon here, you really, I, at least I personally find it hard to believe when I encounter people who are still stuck in it. I, I feel like saying to them, you still believe in this? Like, you still believe that the problem is the liberals. It's the Democrats causing our problems. 
I, I mean, I, even to this day, I get people who are attacking me because I'm, I, you know, I'm too critical of the Republican instead of the Democrat. You know, it's two wings of the same bird of prey. It's two crime families, basically. Unfortunately so, and just rallying around the flag of a particular party isn't going to solve any of our problems. So on that note, we'll take a short break, and we will be right back with more from Tom Woods, TomWoods.com, right after this. Radio friends, I'm James Corbett with CorbettReport.com, and here we are, as every night, unfortunately doing the sad but nonetheless necessary duty of bearing witness to the seemingly constant attack on our liberties from federal governments, not only here in Japan, but of course in the United States, and seemingly in every polity in the so-called developed world, which is why it's so important that we're talking to tonight's guest, Tom Woods of TomWoods.com, about his idea of nullification, and this comes from, of course, uh, many of his writings, including his book, Nullification, How to Resist Federal Tyranny in the 21st Century. And uh, this is such an important concept, I think, for especially the times we're living in with all sorts of liberty-destroying legislation being passed uh, at the moment that, of course, is a total affront to the uh, the Constitution and everything that the Founding Fathers had dreamed of. And, uh, and I want to pick up, uh, Tom, from a, a recent post that you had on TomWoods.com, Shut Up and Memorize Your Fourth Grade Textbook where you note that some of the uh, the criticisms of the, the idea of nullification come from, um, well, n- not so particularly observant people. And and you you note that this this stems back to something that you identify as the Hobbesian model of political association, which uh, 99% of the populace follow just really out of osmosis. Perhaps you can elaborate on that Hobbesian model of political association and, and how that underlies our, our unwillingness to take a look at the idea of nullification. Right, that's a good uh, that's a good way to start. Um, first of all, state nullification is the Jeffersonian idea that if the federal government uh, passes an unconstitutional measure, then the states should refuse to enforce it. That the states need to play some role in judging constitutionality. You can't let can't let the federal government's own courts judge constitutionality because they're just going to rubber stamp everything that the federal government does, and that's pretty much what has happened for decade after decade. So there's a very good historical, logical, constitutional case for this. But it's hard for some people to open their eyes even to the possibility that this idea may be correct because we have all sort of absorbed these presuppositions about how political society needs to be organized. Like We all sort of believe that a great big country is a self-justifying goal and that the way society needs to be organized is that there needs to be one single, irresistible, infallible power center barking out commands at all the lesser associations in society, and there's no other way to live. But there is another way to live. Uh, even though this view that I just spelled out has been taken for granted by almost all modern political philosophers in the West, when liberty was really taking root in Western civilization, a very different model prevailed. And that was a model not where there was one irresistible power center lording it over an aggregate of individuals, but there were competing power centers. There were many layers of society. There was uh, there, there were towns that had liberties of their own. 
uh, universities and guilds had liberties and privileges of their own. There was the church. There were uh, they're all different all different court systems. There were urban courts, ecclesiastical courts, and all different sort of overlapping jurisdictions, but their symbiotic relation constituted the state. And that was a very difficult model for would-be absolute monarchs to dominate, because if you were an absolute monarch, a would-be absolute monarch, you found that it was difficult to just command everybody, okay, you all are going to pay me an income tax, or I'm going to conscript all of you into my military, because you were not just governing uh, an aggregate of helpless individuals, you were governing uh, corporate bodies in the sense of just groups. You were governing self-conscious groups, all of which possessed liberties that they intended to to defend. And so it, society was not just a single flat plane waiting to be steamrolled by one single irresistible power center. It was a multiplicity of power centers competing with each other, hemming each other in, and hemming in any monarch that would want to rule over them. There was no income tax in uh, you know the 16th century. There was no military conscription. There was no monarch that had the authority to get away with something like that. And so what we have in the United States was an attempt to uh, show the world there was this way of living, that you didn't, not everybody had to organize into a French Revolutionary-style centralized regime of the sort that we see now all over the world. You look at every country in the world, it's all basically a centralized state. France, Britain, Germany, Italy, uh, Japan. I mean, just look all over the world. They're all one single irresistible power center. The United States was supposed to be uh, a, a grand statement of no. Like, we see the direction the world is moving in towards centralized government, and we say no. We say that what makes the United States great is not that it's a big giant country. That is not, there are a lot of big giant countries that have been horror shows for liberty. I mean, China, Soviet Union, Nazi Germany. It's not a big giant country that makes us great. It's the fact that we're a collection of societies and that these societies enjoy self-government. They aren't just governed over arbitrarily by some despot. That was what, and that's what nullification is. Nullification is expressing this model that we're not just a bunch of individuals who are going to write petitions to our overlords in Washington to have them try and stop oppressing us. We are organized into sovereign bodies that have liberties of their own, whether or not this regime recognizes them. We are, we are sovereign bodies that are going to stand up for our liberties in, in, and, and use this sovereign capacity that we have to stand up and say, no, that violates the Hobbesian model completely where there aren't supposed to be subordinate bodies that can stand up to the center. But that's the key to keeping America a free society, and that's why we've got to recapture this long-forgotten idea. Well, I think that's that's very astute, and I think it relates also to a recent post that you've had uh, on your website, TomWoods.com, where you are reviewing a book, and, and you note the recent tendency of scholars to try to decouple uh, Thomas Jefferson from his very obvious and, and openly admitted influence, the influence of John Locke on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, do, you, do you see that decoupling as perhaps another attempt of, of trying to fit uh, Jefferson into some sort of more Hobbesian republicanism type model? Oh, absolutely. Now, of course, Jefferson is just a big embarrassment for, uh, you know, the central planners and the, you know, the sociopaths who govern us today because, you know, practically everybody admires Jefferson and the draft of the Declaration of Independence of the uh, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, founded at the University of Virginia. I mean, just an illustrious figure. So the fact that he favored not only states' rights, but toward the end of his life, 
uh, even beyond county rights. I mean, he was favoring a war, what he called the ward republic system, where just a part of a city would be self-governing. So, I mean, he, he thought even states' rights was for pansies. So this guy, and he believes in strict construction of the Constitution. He believes in private property rights in the John Locke tradition. So, yeah, that's a real, you know, that's a, that's a puzzle they're going to have to deal with. And the way historians have tried to deal with it is by trying to pretend that, that, uh, Jefferson didn't believe these things, that he, they, they somehow try to make him out to be, uh, kind of just like Hillary Clinton except 200 years ahead of schedule. And that this is just so grotesquely wrong and so obviously wrong. Um, that now the pendulum has started to swing back the other way. You, you mentioned that on my site, I just reviewed a, a, a book on, a brand new book on Jefferson that's very, very good that actually shows that all this revisionism on Jefferson's a whole lot of hooey. And that this is one of the, you know, a lot of time historical revisionism is very necessary because the court historians of the regime have their own version of history and they always get things wrong. They usually get the wars especially wrong. But once in a while there is somebody who was told correctly the first time and Jefferson is one of those people. The original version of who Jefferson was, the, the classical liberal, that is to say, 18th century sort of libertarian figure, uh, is who he really was. And yeah, of course, the, the, anything they can do, any way they can twist history, they can, that they can get us to think of states' rights as being some kind of synonym for slavery, or even just the very fact, as, as Joe Sobern put it, he said the very fact that people are afraid of the word anarchy, but they're not afraid of the word state, is an indication of the success that the state's propaganda has had. Well, if we could just attach a turbine to Thomas Jefferson's grave, I'm sure we could power a small city based off of the rolling over that's being done in the comparison of his name to Hillary Clinton. It's certainly sending shudders down my spine. Um, oh, no, I, of course. Yeah, but I, I have heard it. I have actually heard, I heard it in grad school. I heard somebody say that basically there's a continuum that runs from Thomas Jefferson to Hillary. I actually heard that. So I'm... <laughs> I only uh, wish I had made that up. It's absolutely incredible. Well, uh, one of the things that I find particularly fascinating about all of this, and perhaps one of those delicious historical, um, uh, not ironies, but I suppose um, continuations, uh, one might say, is that uh, one of the first articulations of the nullification idea really came from the Virginia uh, Ratifying Convention for the Constitution in 1788. And here we are a couple hundred plus years later, and uh, Virginia being one of the states leading the nullification of the NDAA 2012. So, I thought that was particularly interesting. Perhaps we can go back to the Virginia Convention and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Now, now, as I'm telling this, I want people to ask themselves uh, how many times they remember learning this in high school. Uh, and and I, I, would be, I would be willing to bet that as, as large as your audience is, the answer is going to be zero because this is just not talked about. If you look back, now, of course, we all remember the Constitution – uh, was drafted in Philadelphia, and then it was sent out to the states to be ratified. And so each state held a special convention to consider whether or not to do so. Now, Virginia is uh, a very influential state, not merely because of its size, but also because of the illustrious statesmen who came from Virginia. So it's very important what was said in Virginia. And at their ratifying convention, you get the great Patrick Henry, who was concerned about some of the clauses in the Constitution. He thought he could drive a truck through these clauses, and he, he was concerned that this federal government would be unlimited in practice. And he was reassured by Federalists, that is to say by supporters of the Constitution, that don't worry, number one, this is a, a, a government of strictly limited powers, and number two, if the federal government should try to reach for any additional power, try to impose on Virginia any obligation that it didn't sign up for, 
then Virginia will be exonerated from that. Now that is, well, I don't know, if not outright nullification, that is as close as you're going to get to just coming out and saying that if the federal government does something that's not authorized to do, then we don't have to go along with it. It was on that understanding that Virginia ratified the Constitution. Now, when was the last time you read that in your textbook? I, unfortunately, I think we're, you're probably correct in saying zero people have been taught zero. that because it's just Myself absolutely included. eliminated. Very sad. Well, on that note, we'll uh, take a short break and we'll be right back to wrap things up with Tom Woods, TomWoods.com, right after this. Radio friends, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are talking to Tom Woods of TomWoods.com about the concept of nullification, which unfortunately, as we were discussing before the break, is one that is not really uh, taught in the history books very much, and uh, certainly the pedigree of this idea is not taught at all, because it gives the lie to the idea that this is some sort of kooky fringe idea that can't be floated. But uh, even despite the the mainstream attempts to try to suppress the idea of nullification, I think in recent years we've demonstrably seen the the re reemergence of this idea as people become more and more disaffected with the political process and what writing to their congressmen can ultimately achieve. And we have seen this idea of, uh, in the wake of the Patriot Act, for example. There were hundreds of local municipalities across the United States that that uh, at the local level decided that they would not be enforcing certain provisions of the Patriot Act. And recently we've seen uh, state moves to nullify the NDAA 2012, by which uh, Lord, President, Emperor, Ruler of all Obama claims to have the ability to indefinitely detain U.S. citizens and deploy military assets on U.S. citizens, etc., and uh, again, I mean, they can pass any law they want, but that doesn't mean that it, it actually has force of law, and it doesn't mean that uh, people should go along with it. So, uh, uh, Dr. Woods, perhaps you can speak to that rising tide of the uh, idea of nullification and whether you think that uh, ultimately it will be able to win out against all of the oppression that we see coming from the federal level. Well, you know, it's, it, it can't help everything, but just the very fact that people would entertain the possibility of it is a healthy thing. That it means that people are not confining themselves to the options that the New York Times would give them. That, well, you know, you can vote for this or that jerk, or you can you can write to your congressman, or you can you can hand out little pocket constitutions or whatever, and they're perfectly okay with all those things. And there's nothing wrong with handing out pocket. You know, that's fine. But the point is that pretty much we've done all those things, and we've got nothing to show for it. So the fact that people would be willing to think outside that stultifying New York Times box and say, oh, wait a minute, I know this is not respectable, I know MSNBC isn't going to like this, I know Bill O'Reilly isn't going to like this, but you know what, I support it anyway. That's a wonderful, liberating step forward. And the Tenth Amendment Center, which has been doing wonderful work on nullification, has sponsored a nationwide tour of major cities. We've got one coming up in Philadelphia this Saturday where I'll be speaking along with a lot of other people, Sheriff Richard Mack and others, and it's called Nullify Now. So we're doing Nullify Now Philadelphia this Saturday. And the the response has been great. We get hundreds of people at these events, a lot of enthusiasm. I, I wrote a book called Nullification because I suddenly realized that no longer is this just a historical subject, that people are actually looking at it now in terms of current events. And that was why I decided, well, I better write a book that makes the case for it and helps people 
uh, to understand the, the, the U.S. history behind it so that when they get inevitably get attacked for supporting it, well, I think if you read nullification, you'll be able to uh, answer all the, you'll be able to hold your own in debate and, and then some. And so, uh, you've very graciously been uh, mentioning my site, tomwoods.com, and for people interested in nullification specifically, I'll give another, I'll, another site, statenullification.com is a page of mine. And at statenullification.com, I just give the basic overview of what it is and how to, uh, how to prove that this, this really is correct, a legitimate view in U.S. history. Uh, some videos about it, me on TV talking about it, some uh, some speeches I've given. All that stuff is all available for free at statenullification.com, so I urge people to check that out. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, the point is to arm ourselves for the debates that uh, that people who would be naysayers of this idea might might come up with, because ultimately I think that the uh, the debate in the debate this, the facts would speak for themselves. But I think that's kind of the point. I mean, the thought police have already invented the term tenther to try to limit uh, this debate and try to put people in that box and make them sound kooky. Um, so, so unfortunately, that's uh, that's the way that a lot of the political debate uh, works in this day and age, where where it becomes about these ad hominem terms and and trying to uh, limit people and and put labels on them before you even talk to them. Well, as a matter of fact, if we've got just one more minute, because we probably have a break break coming up at the uh, bottom of the hour, but um, I did a video basically spoofing this aspect of American political culture, where people just call you a name, and instead of actually engaging the merits of your claims. They just figure if they can glue a name to you, it'll make you toxic in the eyes of the public. So I made a video laughing at this process, and it's called Interview with a Zombie. And the idea is, and, and this zombie is interviewing me the same way any MSM person would interview me, where they just call me a name, and then I've got all the arguments and the rational points and, and the history behind me. It doesn't matter, because the next thing that he says is another name. It's just one name after another. But, of course, he's a zombie in the video, uh, the reporters who would be interviewing us in the mainstream media don't have that excuse, although I wonder sometimes, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, but yes, it would I explain, have seen well, that video. Well, at yeah. statenullification.com, you can see that interview with a zombie video. I think I've had about 118,000 views of that thing so far, so it, it struck a chord with people because a lot of us have had that happen. They just call you a Tenther is the most absurd name of all. Thomas Jefferson was the original Tenther. He said it was the cornerstone of the Constitution. So you're going to call me a name that would also apply to Jefferson? You know, I somehow I think I'll survive. <laughs> well, that's that is the point. And again, that's a good point to to point out because a lot of people just don't understand the pedigree of this idea. But uh, but you're exactly right. And I have seen that video. I do recommend it. It it absolutely. It strikes a chord because people understand that's unfortunately the, what the uh, controlled establishment media is there to do in this current political paradigm. But on that note, we're almost out of time, and I know that you're a busy man. You have to get going. So uh, just finally, TomWoods.com, StateNullification.com, any other places that you would recommend for people on this subject? Um, uh, those two will get you started. They've got links to other places. Excellent. Well, Tom Woods, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been a pleasure having you on. Well, the pleasure was mine, James. Thanks for having me. Excellent. All right. And to all listeners, stick around. Of course, we'll be back with the second half of the program right after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Here we are on this Tuesday evening, and there goes Tom Woods of TomWoods.com. Again, a very, very busy man, so unfortunately he could only join us for half of the broadcast. But a very, very important topic to be bringing up, nullification. And again, that is a very important tool in the arsenal of the info warriors out there who are exasperated by the lack of effect of simply writing to your congressman or waving placards. This is something that can actually be done and, and implemented at a more local level, trying to bring that power back down to the people where it belongs rather than the fat cats in Washington. And as we alluded to in that last segment, of course, this is a, an effective tool and thus one that needs to be demonized by the, the so-called would-be power elite, who, of course, have to demonize anything that threatens to challenge their system. And the best way to do that is to apply stupid labels to it, like tenther or whatever they want to call people who who talk about this, so that they can try to limit that and make people think, oh, this is a kooky idea, we can't talk about this. And uh, as as Tom Woods was saying there, he did have that excellent uh, interview with a zombie uh, video up on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes at CorbettReport.com slash radio so you can watch it for yourself. But it's a, it's a topic that he addressed a few times. So I actually want to play a clip from a speech that he gave earlier this year, back in January, where he was talking about this nullification tool in the in the info arsenal, as it were. And uh, and he makes this point about uh, how people try to limit the debate and and really uh, wh- how we can bust out of that paradigm. And I think he makes it in in quite a more articulate way than I am at this moment. So let's go to this clip, uh, Thomas Woods talking about nullification and the reception to one of his earlier books, The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. So 2004, I had this book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. And the response from the New York Times was they were appalled. How dare I say some of the things in that book? But what was revealing is that when the New York Times attacked me for that book... They did so not in the book review section. That would have been flattering enough. They attacked me in a signed editorial on the editorial page, solemnly warning the American public about this book. Copies of which, by the way, are available at my table. And, uh, of course, uh, what do you suppose happened when that attack came out? Of course, sales right through the the roof, of course, because all normal Americans immediately thought, wow, what has got the New York Times all worked up? I've got to get a copy of this book. So ever since then, the New York Times has just ignored me. Like, that's the approach now, which I have to hand it to them. That's much smarter than what they did before. But that's really what sort of put me on the map. And I realized when that book did so well, I was just just some professor somewhere. And up to that point, I'd written books that more or less other professors might buy. And, you know, if you sell 50 copies, you have a big bash and, even though you yourself secretly bought 25 of them just to make it look respectable. So this was just a shot out of the blue. And when I saw the, how it resonated, I thought, all right, there is a market for that. P- people are just sick of it. They don't believe what the official opinion molders are telling them. They don't believe what the official information transmission channels are telling them. Well, all right, well, then I want to keep doing this. And somehow I've kind of made a kind of career out of talking about forbidden things or things they don't want us talking about. And that's what I'm talking about tonight is a topic they don't want us talking about. And that's that's the topic of nullification that you're going to hear talked about a lot more because there are a lot of frustrated Americans. I agree completely that we've got a lot of frustrated Americans, but not just frustrated Americans, but Americans who feel like we've already tried all the other things. Like we've already tried every, you know, I've written to my congressman. I called up my congressman. I said, I think you're a bum. And, you know, it doesn't say, gives me slight satisfaction, but I'm not seeing results here. 
what can we do other than this? And suddenly, people are peering into the long-neglected Thomas Jefferson toolkit, and they're looking for things that might work. Now, some of these things, like nullification, I have to warn you, are not approved by the New York Times. And in fact, what I tell you tonight does not fall inside that box that all good Americans are supposed to confine themselves to. We're supposed to be in that box. You all know it. It goes from Joe Biden to Mitt Romney. You're allowed to be somewhere in there. But if you stray a little bit over here, citizen, be careful. Be careful. You're not respectable. Well, my view is, as I've said repeatedly, that it's our job as good and decent Americans to crush that box into the ground and then set it on fire. That is a good way of putting it, isn't it? Absolutely. Let's set that box on fire and completely escape it and, and forget that it even ever existed. And that's what we have to do in the mental paradigm of uh, the box that they try to put us in whenever there's a new and or even an old and time-tested idea that, uh, that obviously has merits to it that they want to demonize. They'll just try to uh, put that box around it. So actually, that goes back to a clip once again from uh, YouTube. It's called Thomas Wood's Nullification, a Tool We All Have. And it's a good 35-minute summary of the ideas that are contained in uh, in his book on nullification, which I suggest that people go and take a look at at tomwoods.com. But let's get more into this idea. We've uh, we've talked a lot about the the merits of nullification, but what precisely is it, and what's the history of it? Well, let's start getting some more uh, handle on that from statenullification.com, which Tom Woods directed us to earlier tonight. And on that, it has a nice breakdown of the uh, the idea of nullification. For example, what is it? Uh, state nullification is the idea that the states can and must refuse to enforce unconstitutional federal laws. Says who? Says Thomas Jefferson, among other distinguished Americans. His draft of the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798 first introduced the word nullification into American political life, and follow-up resolutions in 1799 employed Jefferson's formulation that nullification is the rightful remedy when the federal government reaches beyond its constitutional powers. In the Virginia Revolutions of 1790, Resolutions of 1798, James Madison said that the states were duty-bound to resist when the federal government violated the Constitution. But Jefferson didn't invent the idea. Federalist supporters of the Constitution at the Virginia Ratifying Convention of 1788 assured Virginians that they would be exonerated should the federal government attempt to impose any supplementary condition upon them. In other words, if it tried to exercise a power over and above the ones the states had, uh, the, the, the ones the states had delegated to it. Patrick Henry, Henry and later Jefferson himself elaborated on these safeguards that Virginians had been assured of at their ratifying convention. And then it goes through some arguments for and uh, why we need the, the concept of uh, nullification and then uh, it, it starts to get into some of the, the critiques that people like to raise about this idea. And I think one of them that's particularly interesting is this one. It says, isn't this just a smokescreen for slavery? And uh, again, another just bizarre attempt to, to besmirch this idea. And it, uh, the response is, nullification was never used on behalf of slavery. As I show in nullification, it was used against slavery, which is why South Carolina's secession document cites it as a grievance justifying Southern secession. 
and Jefferson Davis had announced it in his farewell address to the Senate. Thus, Wisconsin's Supreme Court, backed up by the state legislator, legislature, declared the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 unconstitutional. The mere existence of the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution did not, in its view, suffice to make all the odious provisions of that act constitutionally legitimate. In Abelman v. Booth, 1859, the Supreme Court scolded it for doing so. In other words, modern anti-nullification jurisprudence has its roots in the Supreme Court's declaration in support of the Fugitive Slave Act. Who's defending slavery here? So yet another case where the critique is absolutely mindless and shows a complete uh, lack of knowledge, a complete ignorance of the actual history of this tool and how it has been employed in the past. So it goes directly against the thrust of that argument that tenthers are just insane secessionists who want to reinstitute slavery or whatever bizarre paradigm they're, they're coming from in an attempt to really tar and feather this idea. But let's, uh, let's look at, again, this is not just something that's theoretical, it's not something that's abstract, it's something that can and has been implemented. We can even go back to May 2003 uh, for the response to the USA Patriot Act, the passage of that absolute liberty-destroying, constitution-shredding uh, legislation that, uh, again, Washington likes to pass from time to time as if they have the right to do so, which they clearly don't. We have this from May 15, 2003, from foxnews.com. Local communities refuse to enforce Patriot Act. It says, quote, In a rare occurrence, conservative watchdogs are siding with liberal groups who say that several provisions of the anti-terror USA Patriot Act are cause for concern by Americans seeking to protect their basic rights. We must balance at all times the fact that national security is important, but freedom is essential, said Phil Kent, president of the conservative Southeastern Legal Foundation, which has taken issue with expanded federal surveillance powers granted under under the law. Kent and others are applauding local efforts to try to ward off provisions of the Patriot Act. As of this week, the state of Hawaii, as well as 104 cities and counties across the country, country have passed resolutions protesting federal law enforcement measures in the USA Patriot Act. And of course, that was from May 2003. From that point on, I believe there were hundreds more uh, municipalities across the country that voted to refuse to enforce the Constitution shredding provisions in the Patriot Act. And that's not something you really hear about. It's not something that's really part of the understanding of the Patriot Act, or uh, it's never really mentioned. But yes, all of these different legislatures did have and pass resolutions saying that they wouldn't go along with the Patriot Act, once again proving that the power really is at the in the hands of the people, and uh, if the people don't go along with it, it is null and void, as it should be if it goes against the Constitution. But again, if if the, legislat- the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the ju- judicial branch all fail the people, what is the recourse of the people? What can be done in that situation, given the constitutional republic that America is? Well, Jefferson and others argued nullification, and there it is. There it is in action. And, of course, we've seen this recently as well. Just from uh, last month, February 2012, we had this from blacklistednews.com by way of Tenth Amendment Center that Tom Woods was talking about earlier. NDAA nullification passes Virginia Senate by a veto-proof 39-to-1 vote. Today, the Virginia Senate took a firm stand in support of liberty, the Constitution for the United States, and the Constitution of Virginia, by voting in favor of the House Bill 1160, the NDAA Nullification Act. The final vote was 39 to 1. After a motion to recommit, delay until next year, went down to the wire before being rejected yesterday, 
Groups across the political spectrum activated in support of the legislation, which codifies in law that no agency of the Commonwealth of Virginia, including defense forces and National Guard troops, will comply with or assist the federal government in any way under its newly claimed powers to arrest and detain without due process. So once again, it can and it has been used. This is an effective tool because it actually stops the federal government from doing what it presumes to be able to do without force of law. So without the uh, the people actually backing it up and enforcing these rules, they can pass any law they want. They can pass a law saying that you have to sacrifice your firstborn son in a barbecue pit next Sunday, but it doesn't mean you have to follow through with it. And it, of course, legislation like that is null and void, and the people just have to bear witness to that. And that's why the nullification movement is so important, and it is important for people to start looking into this. On that note, we have one caller on the line, and we have a little bit of time left if you want to squeeze in a call, uh, 1-800-313-9443. So let's go to your calls. We have Ryan in Texas on the line. Ryan, thanks for calling in tonight. Hey, thanks, James, uh, for taking my call. Um, being that nullification is such a rare and scary idea in a mainstream uh, kind of thought process, um, how did the – my question would be, at what point did the power of the states – uh, how did it become such an? When did it become such an obsolete idea in the uh, mainstream thought process of the states being that were the United States of America um, instead of the United Federal Government of America? How did it become? When did it become such a uh, obsolete idea? An excellent question, and I, I doubt there's one particular time that people can point to, but I, uh, my argument would be that it's just part of that slippery slope. And it started, uh, I mean, most notably, I would say, in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve. But from that point, the the slow encroachment of the federal government into every la- layer of society, which, of course, was put on steroids in the 30s with the New Deal and all of the various ways the uh, the government was was reaching into the states to try to implement new uh, you know social security numbers and things like this that uh, that looks so innocent at in the context of where they were coming from but as we've seen what they've evolved into I mean it was really the start of that incredible decline and uh, so I think a lot of it has happened in the 20th century but I, I mean to a certain extent it's a debate that's been going on since the founding of the country. But interestingly enough, as Tom Woods points out, I mean, even someone like Madison, an avowed Federalist who was who was part of, you know, he was on board and gung-ho about the Constitution, was saying that Virginia was duty-bound to resist if there was a, a, a law passed that was unconstitutional, which, I mean, it's not just a far cry from where we are today. It's 180 degrees. But, uh, Ryan, what's your take on that? Well, I just think that, uh, I, you know, it's, it's such a complex question. I, I could be a... Honestly, it could be a subject of a of a, of, a, of another uh, several shows, several hours of of debate. But I just think that um, when 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 people start putting all of their faith in in in, uh, in one entity, that that centralized uh, entity of of the federal government, quote unquote, um, they just they they lose the uh, they lose the uh, faith in 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 what the, the founders you know put forth. As, as what should be the, the basis of, of of what the country should be, because they saw what the centralized powers were doing in in the countries that they were fleeing. So they thought, you know, they, that they would uh, decentralize it. And we just have lost sight of that completely. 
I, I couldn't agree more. And, and really, I mean, once again, people perish for their lack of knowledge, their ignorance of history. And once again, I mean, go back and, and read the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, and the types of arguments that people were having at that time uh, about the, the, the scale and the scope of the Constitution. And, and people were, I mean, genuinely afraid of the idea of the creation of this federal government because they knew it would just quickly devolve into a new type of tyranny. So even in the Federalist Papers, I mean, you have all of these kind of ridiculous arguments for why we need a centralized government to have all these powers. But, but they were, I mean, clearly on the, uh, on the backpedaling part of that debate and were truly trying to do sort of this uh, rear guard action, I think, on the, the debate about you know, how, how, why we, we need this at all. And it's interesting to go back and read that from our own perspective and to see the tyranny that the federal government has become. And of course, everything that the federalists were writing in their federalist papers were, was completely wrong. I mean, they kept saying that there would be all these safeguards and provisions and nothing could go wrong. But of course, uh, it was too idealistic, too utopic. And of course, I think people like Hamilton had their own objectives in trying to basically start a new kingdom in America. Right. And, uh, well, thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you for the call. And and you're right. I mean, it's something we could talk about for hours and hours and hours, and I'm sure we will come back to time and again. And, in fact, I am going to be doing a podcast episode on CorbettReport.com in the coming weeks on Alexander Hamilton, his life, and where he was coming from and what he was attempting to do, talking about the Federalist Papers. So we will be getting into this issue more and more. And on that note, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with more Corbett Report Radio right after this. Broadcast friends, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here in the final moments of Corbett Report Radio for this Tuesday edition of the broadcast. Once again, we had a very interesting conversation with Tom Woods to start off the broadcast talking about nullification, the idea of the people taking the power back into their own hands where it belongs and uh, and where it always resides. I think that's another important part of this puzzle to keep in mind that they can pass whatever laws they want and they can say whatever they want, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily applies. And once again, if the people fail to go along with something, that then uh, they can't implement it. So, again, it can apply to martial law or whatever else they try to bring in uh, in through the side door or through the legislative process. Once again, it, it will not and cannot stand if the people are against it. So... On that note, again, as uh, Ryan in Texas was talking about, this is something that we can talk about uh, probably endlessly, and we will continue to do so, and perhaps our next best chance will be next Monday night. I have scheduled to come on the program. It's not confirmed yet, but I have scheduled to come on the program Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio, and uh, people might know uh, that I recently had the chance to talk to him for CorbettReport.com. 
There's the uh, video and audio of that up on CorporateReport.com where we talked about the uh, voluntarist idea versus the minarchist idea and how much government do we need, if we need government at all, why do we need government. Quite a wide-ranging philosophical conversation, one that garnered quite a bit of attention, so I hope that you will check it out if you haven't already. But next week we will be talking to Stefan, and uh, we'll be talking about a number of issues, I suppose. Um, I'd like to talk to him about money in a free society, but I'm sure we can also touch on the idea of nullification as a type of stopgap measure while we're not living in the anarchist or voluntarist state that we may want. Uh, in the meantime, we do have to deal with the system as it is. Perhaps we can talk about that idea of nullification and where the power really resides. But on that note, uh, also uh, coming up in the next uh, week or two, I have scheduled for tomorrow night, we're going to have a conversation with a filmmaker, uh, Tease Snyder, who made a very interesting, very good well-produced short do- uh, film, not a documentary, a, uh, a dra- dramatic representation of a family dealing with 9-11 truth and uh, a daughter who's basically introducing his, her father to the idea of 9-11 truth. Very interesting one. called It's called Blindfold. I'll put the link in the show notes. We'll be talking to the filmmaker behind that tomorrow night, T. Snyder. And next week, we have Stefan Molyneux up on Monday, as I was saying. We have Mark Russell up for a conversation about fear on Tuesday night. And on uh, Wednesday night, I'm sorry, I completely, utterly messed that up. No, next Thursday night, we have T. Snyder, not tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow night, we have uh, 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 Stefan Kinsella who, of course, we had scheduled on the program last week but was unable to make it for that program. We've rescheduled him for tomorrow night. So tomorrow night, Stefan Gonsella. Next week, Stefan Molyneux on Monday, Mark Russell on Tuesday, T. Snyder on Wednesday. And once again, Corbett Report Radio and all of the work that I do at the Corbett Report is brought to you by you. I am an independent uh, journalist, and I do need your support. So I once again want to put out my heartfelt thank you to all of those subscribers who really do make this possible once again details are at corporatereport.com slash support and there are ways to subscribe for as little as 100 japanese yen per month and you can get the corporate report e-newsletter uh it comes out on a monthly basis and it has news updates and uh, subscriber only video and discounts on all of the corporate report dvds which also go to help support these operations so once again thank you to all of those people who are subscribed i couldn't do it without you On that note, we're going to finish it up for tonight, and we'll be right back with you 23 hours from now. So until then, thank you for listening, and take care.